I mean, yeah, I mean, what is the difference? I mean, do they call it macaroni? I remember, I remember you used to call it macaroni? Yeah. Pasta? Well, Mac, you know, it's, it's funny. I had a friend of mine in med school. Yeah. God bless him. He was 540 pounds. Ah, and and he was he was kind of a southerner that ended up a lot of his life living out by Altoona, Pennsylvania. I think then I think he immigrated to the you know southeast. Had a bit of a southern accent. He he was like one of our besties. You know, we studied Mm. till late, then we would do a you know a, a food break at midnight. Here's a guy that would take a big big Tupperware bucket. Yeah. and put two boxes of macaroni and cheese. It was Piggly Wiggly mac and cheese and cut up a whole packet of Fun Buddy hot dogs, which <laughs> were turkey hot dogs, because, you know, yeah. turkey's got to be a little bit more dietetic than, <laughs> than pork. He wow. would cut them up, cut them wow. up, make that. Can you imagine a full double box of mac and cheese with a full pack of, like, eight hot dogs cut up? And we would be telling stories and laughing our asses off and eating, and then after that, we would go, you know, uh, you know, we had a snack, but he yeah. had, like, oh, oh. and then it was bedtime. Wow. It was bedtime, but uh, he, we, we got him, one of my roommates that I got him turned on, because he never heard of uh, pasta with garlic and oil. Oh. Right? Well, but, you know, you, you're giving a coke, you're giving a, a drug out of crack when you do that stuff. Well, yeah, but here's this big huge guy from the south mm. who didn't understand and 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 i love him dearly i just haven't seen him in years and he's and still alive he, he, god bless him well i i hope he's still alive yeah yeah i know wow. and uh he um he used to stutter a little bit and he'd go john he'd say uh flour is flour pasta is pasta there's no way that one pasta tastes differently than another. Mm. He said it's 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 like having ten different kinds of steak, and if you cut a piece out of the steak, it all tastes the same. And I said, no, mm. no, 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 no. I said spaghetti's not linguine. Linguine's not rotelli. Rotelli's not rigatoni. Rigatoni is certainly not gnocchi. Wow. On and on and on. I said then it depends on the sauce that you're putting on top of it. Mm. So we turned them on to extra virgin olive oil. This was all the way back in 1987, wow. 88-ish, mm. that kind of, right? Whatever pasta we made with extra virgin olive oil and fresh cut garlic and some hot pepper, right? Mm. He went ape shit fucking wild. Yeah, like, on, he, he did, but, but he... He paid no attention, and he went out and bought himself a gallon, two half gallons of corn oil, and he went nuts, and he ate three pounds, three pounds of spaghetti in corn oil with with garlic. He was on the toilet shitting his brains out for several days, and he says, whoa, I can't eat that stuff like you guys can, and I says, well, let me see, what did you use? And it was some off-label wow, brand of wow. corn oil. Wow. It was like, wait a minute. You, I said, this is the stuff you put in your fucking crankcase. Yeah, you don't make corn. pasta. You don't wow. eat this shit. Do you, how do you think uh, the guy behind me, John, that the chef, Chef Bones, how he would do with pasta? 
Uh, I, Isom tells me he knows he knows the deal. He's just not ready. He's still mad at me from the other day, so he's he's radio silent right okay. now. That's all but right. I think he would do pretty good. Let's uh, let's do a countdown. Okay. All right. I yep. think we're going to spin the wheel of fate and destiny today. Yeah, it's a it's a day for the Jersey wheel of fate and destiny. Oh, I love it, Jersey Shore. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Jersey Alchemist. This is your next squeezing of the grape. Ah, I'm your host, Dr. John Gerard Gallucci. And I'm Philip D'Angelo. Bravo. I love that conversation because food is one of my favorite subjects. It is. And pastas. Being it Italian, is. we grew up with pastas. Yeah. But who doesn't like pasta? I mean, and nobody, listen, pasta, is it sauce or gravy? Jeez. I mean, we got that. They always debate dig up those. No, excuse the expression, bones. They always dig up those bones on Facebook. It's yeah. like every three months, somebody decides they're gonna they're gonna slam us with that, like we never heard it before. Yeah, yeah. But that's a process, John. It takes what yeah. three hours to? I'll, I'll call it sauce. Make sauce, right? Two, three hours. Yeah, yeah. To right, do it the right way. Of course it does. Because well, who's you have gonna to... who, who's gonna do that nowadays? Us, us. Yeah. We're the only ones. Yeah. We're the only ones. All the I feel and then like we wonder where everybody else is, mm, right? I feel all the cultures, and the like, you know, the things we did in our culture and other cultures. I think they're all disappearing. Everything's so bland. Yeah. You know, well, it's like Wonder Bread and turkey and. Yeah. Well, I got news for you. If the if the new world order has its way, oh boy, all of the different peoples of the world are now going to be homogenized into one um, a loaf. How about how about a generic tasteless loaf that no matter how you slice it, it's going to look the same and taste the same. Just like my friend was saying about pasta that mm. that these different shapes and sizes is a hoax. He says it's ridiculous. He says it'll all taste the same because it's all made with the same uh, origin, the same product, the wheat, you know, and, and I said, no, but then he learned in short order that that actually was not true at all. Wow, wow. Great yeah. story, great. Was his nickname Tiny? <laughs> I knew a guy that was, uh, uh, whose brother was named Tiny, and he was over 400 pounds. Great guys, both of them were great guys. That's funny. Yeah. Well, the, the, the joke is that this guy, when he was in the Navy, ran the Navy? Uh, he, he, before he, God, <laughs> we gotta have this guy in the podcast. Well, Where is love he? That he's down in Florida. Get him. Um, I would love to have him on the podcast, but he, he said he was 195 pounds when he was in the Navy, and they, you know, at the time, I guess they had, they still had hatches that you had to go through, you know, because, you know, if you were gonna <laughs> submerge, those hatches had to be closed and the wheel turned, you know, to keep the place, you know, watertight. You couldn't get through a hatch if you were four or five hundred pounds, that's for sure. Probably not even three hundred pounds. You know, John, I knew somebody like that as well that was almost four hundred pounds or maybe just over four hundred pounds. And he said he wasn't always this big. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, would you right. just wake up one day? But he showed me a picture at like 25, and he yeah. was like this. Well, I'll tell you what, as heavy as this guy was, and as time went on, and we you know, I met him in, in, in medical school, and then we were still, we're still dear friends. Life takes you in different directions. But when we were 
just coming out of our residencies, you know, he was older, he was heavier, he had oxygen through nasal cannula, oh, you know, I think the sleep apnea thing, but when we were in medical school and he was 500 pounds, if somebody got, you know, we were all joking, we're all friends, but if somebody really poked him and he wanted to prove a point, he was quick and fast and he could run, he could run 30, 40 feet, like in blinding speed. Mm. Yeah, I, I was completely surprised. So wow. he must have had the bone structure, the tendons to handle 500 pounds. I'll tell you what, I would, I'll never get to 500 pounds ever. I'll be long dead before that. Mm. I don't have the physiology. Do you think, John, that some people use food, and maybe your friend did, as a comfort? You know, there's some psychological issue or some yeah. unhappiness that didn't choose alcohol, didn't choose drugs. Yeah, of course. But he chose food. I know yeah. I'm a comfort food eater. There's no yeah, doubt about it. I think it, a lot of people, right? millions and millions, of if, pro probably a billion people on the planet are wow. like that, right? If you stress. Yeah, I mean, no. You know, I, I believe that totally, and I think the people that that um, eat to, you know, they say there's two kinds of eaters. They're the people who, they live to eat, that would be us, mm. and there are people who, they eat to live. Much healthier, I think, mm. to be a person who, who eats just to sustain their existence, you wow. know. I know. My son is like that. Really? My son is skinny as a rail. And when I take him to a restaurant, you know what he gets? He gets a salad. He gets a salad with four shrimp on it. Wow. And I look at him and go, "That's it? You know, that's it?" And you know, he says, "Yeah, Dad. What do you want? You know, what do you want me to be fat like you?" Whoa! Whoa! That was unnecessary. He knows because I'm busting his chops now. He's going to bust back. But you know, I guess. I guess I should go on my son's diet. Wow. You know? You know, John, tell him muscle weighs more than fat. <laughs> you know, when that scale reads a certain yeah. number, like yeah. muscle right. weighs more than muscle fat. Muscle sinks in water yeah. and fat floats. And there's always water retention. Yep. See, I know all the husky ex excuses. I've said them over the years, right? Yeah, we had a family friend back in the day, and when he used to jump in the water at the Cedar Grove pool, no names named, everybody loved the guy. He... He, if he just jumped in and didn't move his arms or his legs, <laughs> his he was floating, and at the level of the water was his belly button. Wow. He was just floating like, like like a fucking buoy in the ocean. Wow, that's you know, yeah. right? Me, I used to I used to uh, be the example during the lifeguard courses that I could, I was the uh, one that broke the dictum that you know you can get a body off the bottom of a pool with a shepherd's crook because no one ever lies flat on the bottom, so there's always a space like a you know foot or two foot, except me. I could fill my lungs up, jump into the water and go mm, boing. Because back then I was skin and muscle and bone. Mm, wow. Yeah. Okay. No more. No more. I wonder where my water line would be. <laughs> well, let's find out. It is Boing. summertime. The buoyancy test. Yeah, yeah. You ready for that wheel, pal? Do the wheel, let's brother. Spin the wheel. Fate. And destiny. The Jersey wheel. We should get like some kind of music. <laughs> we should get yeah, right. All right. Give it a good one. Oh, yeah. John. That's a nice spin. Yeah, it is. A good a nice spin. spin. Good spin. Wow. Well. No. 
Wow. Bosses. 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 Okay, today's topic, bosses. friends. Bosses. Bosses. Wow. Oh, wow. I don't know where to start. Well, hey. I'd like to go on the record right now saying that my current boss is the best boss <laughs> I've ever had. Well, now, you know what? I believe that because I, you speak so fondly of your boss. You do, you. very thank sincerely. You. And let me tell you, me and this guy, in a tough part of my life, I went into his organization and uh, he gave me a shot. And that's all I ever asked of him was just give me a chance and I'll prove you that you make the right decision, which I, I do. And I, I fight for him and his company every day. And uh, so if I'm talking about bosses, boss, if you're watching, it ain't you. Thank you for everything you've well, done. The, the, well, there you go. And that should be uh, well marked. Mark yeah. it well. Yeah. Mark it well. Now, I remember when I was younger, John, one of my first jobs, I was working part-time at a grocery store. Okay? And, listen, hard to believe that I... No, 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 no. It was on 46... Uh, Samson, remember Samson on 46? Electronics store? No, 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 not Samsung. Oh. It was, uh, it didn't last long because management and ownership wasn't that great. But it was like your first discount grocery store. And they needed help, and I, I didn't even have a license yet. Uh, so I'm working there, and for some reason, hard to believe that I would rub somebody the wrong way, even at such a young, vulnerable age. Ooh, but 16? Yeah, 16, 15, something like that. Well, you had to be 16 to work back then, right? To get a permit? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So I'm 16, and this guy, his name is Irv. Irv, you rap bastard if you're still out there. And, and I'll tell you what, he made me do things. It was like in the Army. You know in the Army, yeah. they tell you to dig a ditch? Oh, sure. And then yeah. they tell you to fill the ditch? Oh, well, that's cool hand Luke. Yeah. Well, Irv had me breaking stuff down, building it back up again. <laughs> like, it was like he had nothing else to do. Like, there was something going on in his life. Yeah. That Irv took it out on me. Right. You know, I even filed a union complaint and yeah. won my case against Irv, which definitely sealed <laughs> yeah. my fate. Union yeah. complaint. Yeah, I had a union complaint. I don't even think I was part of the union back then because I was so young and I was new. But this guy, obviously, I don't know, maybe his uh, somebody else wanted the job. I don't yeah. know. It was such a thankless job. I was just a gopher, really, doing all the dirty work. But uh, that was my first experience with a boss, and it was not... So you were about 15, 16? 15 or 16. 15 or 16. Yeah. yeah. He tried wow. to sour me against employment. Didn't work. Wow. Didn't work. Um, you know, uh, my... Who was your first boss? My first, my very first boss, and it was an off-the-record thing. I think I was eight. Eight? Well, yeah, it was my father. My father was the manager of the Cedar Grove Pool. It was a big, big, beautiful outdoor, you know, seasonal, seasonal swimming pool for the community that was the township of Cedar Grove. Still and in operation. Oh, it's 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 beautiful. Yeah, and he was the manager there, and um, 29 years, 29 years, and wow, you know, he 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 loathed the days of of when he, you know. Mixed emotions about growing up as a kid because he grew up in a cold water flat in Newark, which, you know, brings conjures up thoughts of a freezing winter and everybody's freezing their asses off. And, you know, um, but in the summertime, you were sweating your asses off. And he said that he and his brother would sleep on a fire escape. Wow. 
because then they, and they wake up with mosquitoes all over them. Mm. You know, it's tough. It's kind of like camping outside with no tent. Yeah. Um, but my, my dad didn't want us to be idle. He never wanted us to be idle because he said, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Yeah, and right. in, a, in a sense, that's not so far off the mark. So he, when we first moved to Cedar Grove, when I was, I think, three and a half or four, my dad, shortly thereafter, maybe within a season or two, he uh, got a job as the manager in the summer because he was a teacher, you know, through the school year uh, at the Cedar Grove pool. He did. And um, we spent just about every single day of every summer from the time I was about four or five until the time I walked away and locked the door of the restaurant there and I was in medical school. And I knew that when I locked that door, if for all of those years and all of those months and all of those weeks and all of those days at the Cedar Grove pool, that I would never go back. It was weird. It was a very, very poignant moment. Mm. You know, it was a chap, big, big, big chapter of my life closed. It was a, it was a 29-year chapter. John, yeah. talk about a remote location shoot for the Jersey Alchemist. Cedar Grove Pool might oh, be one. Yeah, that's that's a very that's a very interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. But my dad, you know, he, he didn't want me to be idle, so you know. As opposed to other family members who wouldn't have done what he said for a million dollars. Um, he says, I see this baby bucket. We had these little uh, tin buckets with a little bucket handle on them. I think they were made of tin or something. And uh, the women that would line up their lounge chairs along the walkway, along the pool, you know, You know, and, and here's the baby bucket right next to their lounge chair. Mm. And what are they doing? Boing, flicking the butt. Because wow. I guess that was, they must have seen some chick in Hollywood taking a, that last drag and flicking the butt. Because that's cool. There were cigarette butts everywhere all over the Cedar Grove pool. And my father said, hey, he goes, I don't want to see a single cigarette butt at the end of this day. Mm. You know, and then he says, uh, and, and it wasn't even, hey, I'll give you five bucks. It wasn't even, I'll give you a dollar. It was, this this place is a reflection on us because I'm the manager and you're my son. My brother would have told him to go pack it. Mm. I say that lovingly. But um, I was, I took it serious. My dad, I, would, I was my dad's right-hand man. Okay, dad, all day all day going this way going that way to the point where the the women most of the cigarette smokers were laughing here he comes girls here he comes you know all right okay yeah here he comes here you done no i'm not done you little jerk <laughs> picking up papers and wrappers and dirty diapers and cigarette butts that was my first job and then when i was old enough to actually be on the payroll of the township of the department, uh, the, the recreation department in Cedar Grove. I don't know how old I was. I think it was 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. But now I'm getting paid $2 an hour, you know, wow. to be a garbage man at the Cedar Grove pool. And my father had already brainwashed me that that place was a reflection on us. And if it looked like a shithole, then we were responsible for why the place looked like a shithole. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't the cigarette butt flickers. 
it wasn't the mothers who had babies that put the dirty diapers under their lounge chairs. So at the end of the day, when they folded them up and took off, they let they conveniently left the dirty diapers right on the concrete. Oh yeah, it wasn't the young girls that used to have dirty tampon fights in the ladies' room. That's not a joke, people. I've seen it all. Now the boys in the boys' room used to get a big wad of toilet paper and wet it in the sink. And when you threw that, it would stick. It would go. The ceiling was full, uh, full, like hundreds of wet toilet paper bombs that stuck. My job was to get my ass on a big, huge ladder and go up there and scrape them off the ceiling and off the walls and then throw them away. And the ceiling was high. It had to be a 15-foot ceiling. I was like, holy shit. But, you know, I was a young kid, good shape, blah, 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 went up like a monkey. My dad imparted to me what it meant to work harder than everybody around you because everybody's watching you because you're my son. In that sense, he he was the toughest boss I ever had, but he had purpose. Mm. And he taught me what it meant to work hard and why and how the rewards would come if you worked harder than everyone else. But... What I didn't realize was that people would come into my life long after I stopped working for my dad that were just a bunch of pricks that had no purpose to why they were a prick. And it took me a while to sort that out. And then I found myself working my ass off for a prick who just thought I was a joke mm. because I was working so hard. And that's when I started to realize the guy's making a monkey out of me. And then I would just get up and quit and say, hey, fuck you. And I was always, you know, who's the best pitcher, one of the best pitchers in, in history? Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver, rest of the soul. Who's the guy that, that used from? to pitch? The no. chub, chubby guy that pitched in the series between the Mets and the Yankees. What the hell was it? For the Yankees? Yeah. That guy I picked, what, David Wells? No, not Wells. He was another one. Yeah. Didn't they call him the Rocket? Um Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens. Okay. When it comes to throwing f bombs, I'm Roger Clemens. Mm. Okay, I make and I make no apologies for that, mm. because, well, going back to my dad's words, remember who you are. I'm the Roger Clemens of f bombs. Nobody can throw one like me. No one. Mm. You know why? Because a certain set of the population taught me how to throw the f bomb. Yeah, they were my. I had a cousin who was on both sides of the fence. You know, he was, uh, <laughs> he was a detective and a cop. But then on the other side of the family, everybody was on the other side. Mm. If you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Those guys taught me how to throw F-bombs. And it really, really fell on, those seeds fell on fertile ground. Um, I'm going to go through a list. I'm going to read a list of, of where I worked and the bosses that I had. No names named. And I'm going to tell you how they treated me. And it all, you know, you, you put all of that into your life's computer and you come out like, my God, the people that were my bosses, some were, some were really smart and some were purposeful and some of them ended up being my mentors and they taught me well and others were just nasty, nasty pricks. And I use that word feckless because they were just, ah, mm. feckless is like just disagreeable, pointless, purposeless. Mm. So my dad was my first boss, my mentor, 
rest in peace. The next job I had, I was a Little League baseball empire, and the the commissioner of the league was, of course, one of the one of the players' dads, not on my team. And I was an I I was an umpire at this point. And the only thing that really meant anything to us was if you put in a request for certain days to not work or to work. You know, I thought there was a rhyme and a reason for why he was making the schedule, and it always seemed like I was on a shitty field when I requested not to be or not at not at work, not doing the umpire thing. And then I found out that the people that were getting preference over me were his neighbors. Oh. Well, that's what I started to say. Oh, there's more to this world of working somebody, working for somebody than them, you know, caring about you and and molding you to make you better. Right. Then I was a lifeguard. My dad was my boss again, and I was a reflection of him. So I really had to, I really had to kind of toe the line. No, no fooling around. Then I, my brother and I owned the restaurant at that pool. And you know something? Wow, there was no margin for error because if you were uh, a slob, if you were shiftless, if you were lazy, man, you were going to get tsunamied by, by the clientele on a hot day. And we're talking 4,000 people who all want to eat at 11.59 a.m. There's nobody at the restaurant. 60 seconds later, there's 600 people at the restaurant out of 4,000. That's not a joke. That is not a joke. You have to be prepared from the day before. And usually when there was a hot forecasted weekend, we would walk in on a Saturday morning and it was muggy in 95 at like nine o'clock in the morning and the ice machine was broken. There wasn't one Cuba ice anywhere. Right. Now you gotta know what to do. I'm an expert at that. Right, but I was my own boss. And I was harder on myself than anybody could be. Why? Because my dad trained me that way. Uh, then I was a bartender in the 80s. And my boss was my cousin, the same guy who taught me, made me Roger Clemens of the F-bomb. But it was really the hotel manager. There was a chain, a big national chain. And the manager used to do things that really pissed me off. He would take me down into the bowels of the hotel and he would take me into this locked chamber with chain link fence and, and chains and padlocks, and it was where all the liquor was kept. And he would say to me in his foreign accent, no, I want you to uh, put this bottle in that bottle. He had me putting house brand garbage, basically bathtub gin and vodka in the premium bottles. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, so you're having me do this so that you have a plausible deniability that you would never do that, but you were holding this over me because if I didn't do what you said, you'd fucking fire me. Wow. Oh, the world runs on people like that. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that wash out of the hotel industry and become politicians. You can bet your ass on that. Shoe sales. You would think that, you know, what could go wrong with working for, I won't say the name, a shoe store, a very popular national brand of ladies' shoes at the local mall. Well, as it turns out, the manager was 21. She was coming on to me, and when I was feigning her because I had a girlfriend, I found myself no longer on the schedule. And I said, hey, what happened? I'm not on the schedule. Oh, well, you know, when I said I needed your help, and you said, no, needed your help, wink, wink, 
and you said no, um, I can't help you now. Basically, you're fired. You're fired. Yeah, I was 19, she was 21. Uh, can you talk about sexual harassment? I got fired by not being put on the schedule, so she covered her ass because she wanted to be in my car after work. Holy mm. smokes, I couldn't believe it. Mm. Uh, liquor delivery. Liquor delivery, there were three owners to the institution that I, I, <laughs> that I delivered liquor for, right? And one of them was a, was a good guy. The other one was always trying to tell me how academic he was. And then the third guy used to abuse me just for the fun of it, just because I think he was having problems with his marriage. And, and this, these are the things that make people either good bosses or shitty bosses. Didn't they make a movie about bad bosses or bad ho bosses, horrible, yeah, horrible bosses? Like Absolutely. Now we're going to step it up to college professors. There were some college professors that to this day, all of my mentors, God bless them, they're still alive. They're wonderful people. They really gave a shit. You know, if I needed that extra help, they would really, really try to, to, to get me from point A to point B. And others didn't give a flying rat's ass whether, whether you got an A, a B, a C, a D. They didn't want to work with you. You were just, you know, you were just making their, their life more difficult. Because you gave a shit, but they didn't. Oh, they're there, people. They're there. Uh, dental school? Right out of college, I went to dental school in Manhattan. Holy smokes. I walked out of dental school after a year. You know why? Because it was a bastion of ugly, ugly manipulative nepotism. And hypocrisy? Holy shit. The hypocrisy in dental school in that place, in those years, those early years, was so thick, I was like, forget it. Quick story, because it's worth telling. In dental anatomy lab, we had to make, it was a practical, that means it's a test. It's not a written test, it's a test where you use your hands and your, you know, all of that stuff and your, your ability like, like a sculptor. And we had uh, 146 kids in the class, my lab section had half of that. Uh, overall number. So half of us file into the dental lab, everybody's sitting, you know, uh, bright-eyed, you know, bushy-tailed, chipper with our lab coats and all that crap. Everybody's got their Bunsen burners and their waxes and their their files and chisels and their freers and all of that shit. And everybody got a little envelope with a number in it. And the number corresponded to a tooth in the adult human dentition. Well, if you didn't know what tooth correlated with what number, no matter how good your tooth was, you were going to fail, because that means you made the wrong tooth. But that was just a little sidebar. So I get like a maxillary um, second molar um, with a cusp of caravelli, like that was going to throw me. And I made this tooth with my own two hands. That was the, the, the essence of the practical. I made this tooth. And when we handed it in, the next day, I got called in to quote the principal's office. And the proctors of the test came over to me, called me into the office, shut the door, and said, listen, we want to know. We want to know. You want to know what? We want to know where you bought the tooth you handed in. And I went, what? What? what did, like, I was, 
I was in a, now I'm in this weird, you know, oh my God, my brain was pulsing. It's like the proctors in dental school that administered that practical, that I, I knew I was going to kill it because I was gifted that way. Don't ask me to kill a math test. Make a tooth, right? I was going to be gifted. They accused me of handing in a, uh, a commercially purchased tooth. <coughs> and I, I couldn't believe my ears. So then I had to ask for a special, special, um, a special hearing with the dean of the fucking school. He goes, well, where did you buy it? What? Are you kidding me? So guess what they guess what they came up they came up with that they singled me out of 146 kids kids we were kids we were in our 20s that they were going to give me my own practical and they were all sitting there like in an old cartoon you know when the farmer is looking at the turkey and it's Thanksgiving and he's on a wheel with the pedal mm. it's a grinding wheel and he's grinding the axe mm. you know like can't wait to get this axe sharp enough because I'm cutting your head off because mm. I know I'm right and you're fucked. Mm. And that's so I had three of these jerk offs sitting around me, all kind of, you know, stroking their beards and, you know, pulling at their hair. And they gave me my own personal practical and they were just waiting to watch me squirm. They were waiting to watch me break down because now. All eyes were on me, and they gave me an equally, you know, um, difficult tooth that I had in the original practical, and God be praised, they watched everything I did. At the beginning of the practical, I shoved it up their ass, and I, went, I had a sweater on, and I went, nothing up my sleeves, nothing up my sleeves, and I finished, and I had a white piece of paper like this paper towel and I put it right on there I says I'm done I'm done can I go now can I go now it was perfect all of them were like silent dead fucking silent those motherfuckers because they had never seen anybody do such unbelievable work and they're all looking at the tooth like this. One of them picked it up, turning it, put it between his fingers. They passed it around, passed it around. The tooth was fucking perfect. It did look like a commercially bought tooth. But guess what? I was better than the people that were making the commercially uh, created teeth. And those motherfuckers, guess what they gave me? They gave me a B. Fuck them. A B. How's that? I, yeah, I do have anger issues because people have really fucked oh, with good me. Reason, and, fuck with me in my life. And by the way, by the way, if you got straight A's all four years of dental school, then you, the top three, were able to get whatever fellowship they wanted, like oral surgery, orthodontics, this, that. Well, they spelled it out to me in the first year that you were. You're in the wrong place to be top three, no matter how fucking good you are. And then, to show you what hypocrites they were, two of them were orthodontists, which you guys should know what orthodontics do, right? And they secretly offered me jobs. As a first-year dental student, they wanted me to graduate and come work with them, but they didn't want the administration to know, but here they were accusing me of cheating. 
you fucking hypocrites. So, homie, homie collapsed in the water fountain across from across from the thing. I, I had a pair of suede, tan cowboy boots, blue jeans. I went through that door, pow, straight kick, whammo. To this day, I think that water fountain is still there. It's the John Gallucci Memorial Water Fountain. I creased the, the stainless steel vents in. And I walked out after that year, never, ever, ever, never thinking about any of those douchebags. But they were my bosses, and that's how they treated me. Med school. Med school, everybody was pretty damn good. Everybody was pretty much on the up and up, and, and that was okay. Surgery residency, wow. Most of the people were good, but there were several outright psychopaths. Psychopaths. Psychopaths, I, I, you know, just stuff that, you know, if anybody called HR on, on them today, they would be ejected from the institution immediately. Um, specialty fellowship, there were five or six full-time faculty people, instructors, mentors, and uh, everybody was generally wonderful, wonderful, except the director just couldn't not be a dickhead. Couldn't not, he, it, it was just so, and people wonder why I haven't gone back to visit or why I haven't joined the Canadian uh, Association of Pediatric Surgeons. Why? So I could see him, the guy, the guy that denigrated me every chance he, he could. I didn't deserve that. He thought I deserved that, and he thought it was his place to do that. Yeah. Moving right along. Job one, two, and three. The first CEO of my first job was a backstabbing, lying piece of shit. That's the CEO of the hospital. My first associate that I was hired to work under was immediately jealous of me and used to hide cases from me. Hide cases from me? What, what really? If you got a big, difficult case, instead of hiding it from me, ask me to scrub with you mentor me. It was my first job. Well, you got no luck on that one. No luck at all. Second job, I was lined up with a sociopath, a hardcore fucking sociopath. So all I'm going to say about that, the guy's still in the woodwork somewhere. And my third job, I went through, God, I think four or five chair people and seven hospital CEOs, and um, the, I suffered the slings and arrows. Really, really, this isn't a boo-hoo for me. This is just an expose on what you're in for. And I remember at my first job, the, um, the uh, physician-in-chief of this particular hospital was a guy I had a commonality with. He used to be the uh, chief of pediatric GI at the... Um, the institution we both trained in up in Canada. And uh, after a, a meet and greet meeting with all the subspecialists, he and I walked together to the parking lot of the restaurant because we happened to park next to each other. He says, yeah, he goes, well, he goes, well, we'll know in a year or so whether this is all real or whether it's just fake, a hoax. And I looked at him kind of as the newbie and I says, well, what do you mean? He goes, a lot of these jobs, he goes, 
they just throw people together. He goes, for a different reason, a different hidden agenda. He goes, and then the whole thing evaporates. He goes, it's kind of like a marriage. He goes, you, you get engaged, everybody's excited, you have an engagement party, then you have a big, big fucking wedding, and two, three, four, five years later, you're divorced. He goes, because it really never was real. And I was like, oh my God. But he taught me. He taught me, then he said to me, remember something, your first job is never gonna be your last. For the, so for the newbies out there, for the newbies that have your hearts and minds set on your first job, be the best you can be. Bring your heart to your job. But remember, statistically, your first job is never gonna be your last. That was a real rant I went on, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a good one though. A lot of history there. And a lot of obviously emotional memories. It just shows no, you. No, but you look. You know, I part of that was me alleviating you from. You know, you have a great relationship with yeah. the present state of affairs, and and we're going to leave it like that, right? Yeah. Right. It was awesome. It just shows you that certain bosses. I mean, I don't know how they get their job, why they stay there. It's not to further the department. It's not to further anybody else's career. It's just soul survival, and there's a mentality that is anti, anti-social, anti-behavioral. It's horrible. It's horrible. These yeah. people, these people, a lot of them are sociopaths. They're one hundred percent. They're anti-social. Yeah. They're narcissistic. They really are. But I'll say this: some, some corporations, whether it be, you know, a uh, a corporate body that makes widgets, or whether it's a a law firm, or whether it's a hospital. But it's it's really true for the healthcare system. The board will hire a president and/or CEO as a closer, just like in baseball. You know, you have a remember Mariano sure. Rivera was sure. I, I don't know wasn't he the best closer I think Absolutely. in history at least Absolutely. to me he was right. Yeah. Except he was closing for the Yankees. These son of a bitches when their agenda is to destroy a hospital. It's kind of like Joe Biden fucking our, our, our economy. Mm. But to me, to me, Joe Biden is doing to the United States what hospital boards or presidents would do to an institution by hiring a CEO. That's a closer. What does a closer mean? It goes against every logical um, sense of what a top executive in a hospital should be doing, what they should be looking out for, you know, increased revenue, decreased, you know, frivolous spending, cutting dead wood, all of that stuff. We, you know, the general public could understand that, but there are some people who are bought in to close the place. And what do they do? They'll do things like enter into phony negotiations with a big, huge um, department. Let's say I hire, I'm, I'm the, the, president of the board, and, I, and we have an agenda to close the hospital or to really deep six it to make it go into the red for whatever reason, because the business world's full of that bullshit and shenanigans. So we hire a closer and behind closed doors in the smoky room, the closer knows that before long, they're going to be getting the hospital torpedoed. And how do they do that? They make the wrong, um, the, the wrong deals with supply houses from from bread to uh, to sutures they um, that they, they might they might get 
a, um, a whole department. Like, what's more pervasive everywhere in a hospital system than the Department of Medicine or the Department of Radiology, right? Uh, right? Or the lab. The lab is like everywhere. Millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars built. And you enter into negotiations with the, the chairman and the hierarchy of that of that department. And they think you are negotiating. But the hired hand, the hired hit person, the, the closer isn't really negotiating. So before long, the negotiations break down and that entire department is fired from the hospital. If they were a private group with an exclusive contract. I've seen it the other way around where they were full-time faculty department, they were anesthesiologists, and anesthesia is so important to a hospital. Every one of the anesthesiologists at a hospital, I will go unnamed, was fired, and every single one of them had to interview for their jobs back at a 50% salary cut. Jeez. Oh, yeah. That's oh, horrible. yeah. So what the result, the result is now the hospital's torpedoed. I mean, really torpedoed. So you got to be aware of the agendas that you just could never fathom. And the business world and the political world is full of that shit. Full of that shit. That's the same shit that Joe Biden's doing right now. That's why I said on a previous episode, hospital systems are like a small paradigm of Washington. It's nothing but filth and fucking corruption and debauchery. Heh. John, is it possible to alchemize this episode? Yeah, I think it is. And you know how? We're moving into a new age. Screw the new world order. Screw Klaus Jerkoff Schwab. Screw all of those people that, that come together uh, and um, run the World Economic Forum. Screw the people that, that create microbes in labs so that they can be released, so that we could have chaos on the planet, so that they can drive their agenda and drive all of the sheeple toward being chipped under surveillance, merged with AI, just like that that fucking evil, bald-headed monster, Yuval Harari. Don't even look that motherfucker up other than to say, no matter what this guy says, keep him out of power. Who cares what he says? He's pure evil. He wants to meld people with AI. Oh, that's a good fucking idea. We are leaving. We are leaving that world behind. God-loving people, people with good, kind hearts, the real people on this planet. In my father's words, remember who you are, because we will ascend from this ugly ugly third dimension that's just full of darkness fear and corruption because that's the only the only way these evil dark dark types can uh, exist is in a low vibration existence it's it's a low vibratory state we are going to transcend that we are and if you don't understand that start looking up the ascension of humanity from third dimension through fourth into fifth dimension and those evil types just 
won't be able to live where we will be. They won't. And the only way to alchemize that is to say that and to say, people, your thoughts are creative. You've heard me say this before because, you know, there's a common denominator through every ending of every one of these episodes. If we joke around a bit, then we we identify and 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 um, point to the to the shit and the debauchery and the detritus of humanity. But then we've got to alchemize it. We can't just leave it there. We have to offer that that path to get above and beyond the the darkness of this present world. And it's through your heart, it's meditation, it's prayer, it's creating your environment with your consciousness. And remember something, your heart is that is that energy flow that allows you to ride in God's river of love and light. That's how we alchemize all this crap where people take advantage of each other, they're horrible bosses, they're ugly, they're evil, they're accusatory, they're insulting, they're, they're here to destroy humanity and to test every single one of us. And I've been through it over and over and over and over again. Now I'm my own boss, except my two dogs are my bosses. They tell me when to cook for them and they tell me, get me this, get me that, let me out, let me in. That's okay. That's okay. I'd rather have my two dogs be my boss now than anybody else that were my bosses in the past. That's it. Amen. It's, it's all in your hands, people. If I didn't make it clear, it's in your hands. You're, you're a chip off the old block. You're, a, you're, you're the creation of the creator, which means with your consciousness and your thoughts and your heart, you either create a horrible, disgusting, tyrannical new world order a la Yuval Harari and Klaus Schwab, or you create heaven, heaven on earth. The choice is yours, people. Wake up. Open your eyes. Be that person who has the eyes to see and the ears to hear. That's it, brother. Great job, John. Thank you for that episode. If you like what we're doing, people, press the like button down below. And and subscribe. 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 It costs you nothing. The Jersey Alchemist. Till next time. Peace. That's it.